Well, you can flip over one page to, uh, you'll see on our sermon title, we get to do something a little bit different than we ordinarily get to do and what we have been uh, doing over the last little while as we've gone through the books of Genesis, which we have just finished. And we've been doing that in parallel with the book of Romans, which we will move into again in a couple weeks and do the last section there. But we get a little bit of a break. We did this about this time last year. We get a time we can do a vision series. And that is we can remind us of what our vision is here as a church, uh, where we're going. And that's, so there are going to be three questions we're going to address over the next uh, few weeks. This week is why are we here? Uh, next week is who are we called to serve? And then uh, the week after that will be how are we going to go about doing this business? Um, so this is going to be fun. It's fun to do something a little bit different and to think uh, specifically about us here in our own context. And I want to start off with an illustration before I read the sermon passage. I'll read it in a second. But this is a great question for us to be able to ask. Um, this might be the question that you had on your mind coming in here today as you were driving. Why in the world are we doing this right now? Why in the world are we coming to worship and going through all of the headache we have to do to get here um, and all we have to put up with each other to be in this community and all those kinds of things. Um, similarly, so we have this dollhouse um, and this thing is humongous and it is not assembled yet. It's, I come home from work one day and there's a box that's like this big with a picture of a dollhouse on the front. And my wife is really good at finding stuff secondhand and thrift shopping. And so she found this dollhouse, which is like a couple hundred dollar dollhouse, for almost nothing. So it was pretty much a gift that we ended up with this dollhouse. So um, I keep hearing from the kids. They are saying, Dad, we want to, can we build the dollhouse today? Can we build the dollhouse today? And we put them off until uh, there was a weekend and we sat down to build it. And I'm laying out all the pieces, and there are tons of them. And in the instructions, it says, make sure when you take pieces out, you label them what they are and where they go with and keep them in neat stacks so you don't lose any and you know where all of them go. Like, it's that kind of a project that this is, they have to tell adults you're probably going to lose pieces and you need to be careful. So we... Before we get into this thing, and it is such a big headache, and this is like on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I don't remember, and I distinctly remember looking at Lauren with a frustrated look on my face saying, why in the world are we doing this right now? <laughs> like, why is this in this stage of life that we have taken this project upon ourselves to put together? Um, and there was an answer to that question. Um, and it really comes in... <laughs> <laughs> It really comes in um, in the form of a story, like there was some context there, that first of all, it was a gift that Lauren pretty much got as a gift, that somebody donated this thing to people like us, um, and it was something of such high value, this was worth um, having and putting together, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but also, um, I have a daughter who had just had a birthday and who really wanted this dollhouse. So there's a relationship involved there. Um, and when you line all those things up and kind of put the dollhouse in context, then it's, okay, I, I know why we're building the dollhouse there. There's a reason why we're taking on the frustration required to do this. And 
I'm sure there are ways that you guys can relate to that as well. I really think this pertains to what we're doing here at church because it is so easy to get involved being busy, teaching things, volunteering for things, going this direction, that's this direction, whatever, and getting so busy and stop and be like, why in the world are we doing this in the first place? Is it even valuable, like the direction that we're going? It could be just the... You know, when you get up early and you're bringing little kids into worship and it's a a pain and you can't listen when you're here, you can't have conversations afterwards, then what is the point of being here in the first place? Like, is this doing any good at all? Not to mention what the mess and the messy people that we, including ourselves, that we have to, when we get enough of us together, what it it is often like in community, that it's, it's not easy to live life alongside other broken people. So this is, I think this is a relevant question to us, for us to ask ourselves regularly, remind, remind ourselves, why are we doing this again? Um, where are we going? And where are we going in our particular, in our particular context, our particular little church? And the answer to this is, just like the dollhouse, that how I want us to think about this first is in context of a story before we get an answer. Because there's a story behind it. Um, it's a long story that goes back a long way, which we're about to read. Um, it has to do with a gift, something that was valuable that was given to us. It has to do with a future potential of what's being worked out in us. And it has to do with a very special relationship we've been given by God. So that's to set uh, how we're going to go about this. I'm going to tell this, to answer this question in two ways. First, the story inherited. Second, the story perfected, and then third, our story, where in our vision language, we're going to talk about the, our own language in particular of our own place and how it relates. So with all that being said, let's go back to the beginning. We're going to start at the beginning of the story, not in Genesis, but in Exodus chapter 19. And this is the point when the people of God were formed as a particular people. Like this, if you were an ancient Israelite, this is the charter passage of who are we and who is who are the people of God after they have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, carried to Mount Sinai, meet with God. God said he's going to dwell with them. And then um, he says these words to them. So that's where we're going to pick up reading. This is Exodus 19, uh, the first seven verses, and this is God's word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself." Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together briefly. Father, we ask again that you would come and meet with us through your word, that you would teach us not my ideas or not anyone else's ideas, but that you would send your spirit and you would prick our hearts as only you are able, that you would teach us about yourself, 
teach us about ourselves, that you would give us the renewal and the healing that we long for in you, and that you would equip us not to leave this with ourselves, but that you would send us out with this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the story inherited. There's a few points I want to um, bring out about this story, just setting the context of how the, how the people of God began. Um, and that is the first thing, if you look in here, the first thing that God says, if you look in verse 4, He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. And then He goes on with instructions. And this is really important. The order of things he says here is really important. And that is a fundamental aspect about who the people of God are and why they are here is they they are a people who have been redeemed. It is not a people who had a really good idea, who had a really good vision, who had really good capabilities, um, who had a really good um, aptitude for working hard and making something happen. That the first thing that defines the people of God is that God moved and God redeemed the people out of slavery. So from the very beginning of the story, before there are any commands, before there are any requirements, the first thing is that the people of God in this story from the beginning are redeemed people. They are a small nation here. They're not that clever. Uh, They were slaves in Egypt. And God moved in and he redeemed them from their slavery. And this was to mark them from wherever they go. And any commands he gives them are based on this fact and not the other way around. His redemption comes first and his commandments come second because of what he has done. So we as a people, as we're picking up this story and we're thinking about it in terms of a story, is that God moved in real history and he did something. He entered into our world, he redeemed his people, he put his marker on them, and even us today, we have this story of the Exodus and the other stories as a part of our story. It shows us who God is, who we are, and why we even came to be. Okay, That's the first thing of this story is that to keep in mind is that we are a redeemed people, not a people who are self-made in any kind of way. Second... I wonder if this language in here was interesting to you. So after he says that, he goes on and says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, um, that is to live within the bounds of the relationship that he has given. Um, That is not necessarily God knows that they are not going to be sinless people, but they are given a way that they can dwell with God through sacrifices, through the law, um, through these other things. If you can do that, then there's going to be special privileges that come with this, um, the God's treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is his, which we'll talk about in a second. But go on to verse six. He says here, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And notice he does not say you are going to be a kingdom with priests. And that's probably how we think of the people of Israel. So there are people, the people of God, and they have priests who work in the temple um, and they make sacrifices, and they're, they're consecrated as holy, only they can go before God and that kind of thing. But that's not what he said. They will have priests, and the priests will have a very special function within this body. But what he says is that you will be a kingdom of priests. 
as in the whole nation, the whole people, is going to be a kingdom with a priestly service. To sum it up and put it in another way, that based on the redemption that God has made, there's also a job to do. And that the redemption that he gives the people of God is not a redemption that ends there. It is not a redemption just for their own sake, but it is a redemption with a calling to actually serve and minister to others, and particularly the other nations around. They used to tell us in seminary that uh, you are not the end of your own education. And this was a way of saying that the whole purpose here of learning is not just to puff yourself up and to gain more knowledge. It is actually to serve others. So let's, how does this do this? In order to answer this question, we have to think of what a priest does. And there are two particular things that a priest does. First, in Israel, the priest would teach the law. Um, they would live in the temple. They would teach the law. They would teach the things that God has decreed. They would teach the rules of ceremony, um, what is required to be in right relationship with God. So there is a way where they represent God to the people. They take what God has said and they give it to the people so that the people can know. But there's another side to that, and the priests would also, given that, that they would take the sacrifices, they would take the offerings and the gifts, and they would present them to God. They would bring the people into God's presence, and they would also, in a way, mediate and represent the people to God. So there's a two-way task here that the priests have. The priests would represent the God to the people, and the priests would also represent the people to God. And to illustrate this, um, I know we have several lawyers in the room. This was um, this hit me when I was summoned to jury duty a couple weeks ago, and I got the pleasure of sitting in the front row of the little jury box uh, for a little while longer than I was comfortable with, and um, got to watch some things going on. Um, and that is, I actually think that lawyers are the priests of the judicial system. So they don't make the rules. The rules are given. The rules comes with law, the law. And the judge is the one in charge. But what the lawyer will do, and I can see this happening, is they will instruct their client. They will tell them the law. Um, they'll represent the law on their behalf. They'll explain what their rights are. Um, they will you know, help them to know how to conduct themselves in a court of law and those kinds of things. But they will also stand up in front of the judge and represent their client before the judge. So they will also appeal on behalf of the client that based on the law, um, then my client is entitled to this, that, and whatever provision. So if you're a lawyer, you kind of represent both ways. You represent the law to the people, and then you represent the people uh, to the law. And so that's, uh, that's kind of a picture and illustration of what's going on here. Um, but I want us to catch the significance of this. This is not meant to say that the people of God are to go out and to um, lawyer people, whatever that might mean. Um, but that is, this is a whole people that has been redeemed with a purpose. And that is to represent the people on behalf of God and God on behalf of the people. This involves teaching the law. This involves teaching what God is like, um, the instructions that he has given. But in the other way, the people of God are actually entrusted with the means of how to be right in right relationship with God. That God has given this to the people 
as a special possession of special people that they have the means. In the Old Testament, they had the sacrifices. They had the washings. They had the way that people could come into the temple and dwell with God. Um, and now, it is faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that he, is, that he has been given. So this is all to make the point that the story we are inherited, um, this is a story about redemption. It's not a story about self-made people. But it is also a story where the people are redeemed and they have been given a purpose. And that is to intercede on behalf of all peoples and all nations to God and to serve the things of God to the people. And there's one more point that I want to point out of all of this, and that is where is this supposed to take place in this passage? And let's go back up to to verse 5. So he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So already we have here that God owns everything. He is not um, located in um, the land of Canaan where they're headed. He's not just located in the tabernacle. All the earth belongs to God. All the people in one way um, are owned by God and they owe their allegiance to him either in their rebellion or either in their, um, their agreement with him. Um, but yet, he has put the people of God not separate, but among all of the people's. And this is brought out further and down to what this means, that they are a holy nation. So a holy nation, all that means, this does not mean that they are a sinless people. It means they are a people who are set apart. They're different. They reflect the things of God. They reflect a relationship with God that is different from all other peoples, all other relations. They reflect a way of living together um, that reflects different kinds of relationships that reflect what God loves and who he is. So what the people of God are called to do is in their priestly service, they are not called to do this as separating from everybody else who might think differently. But they are actually placed as a particular nation right in the middle of everybody else, all for the purpose that God's name will be known. This happens through the way they live. This happens through the way they worship and through what they say. And that is, this is just another aspect of that our redemption as the people of God doesn't end with ourselves, but is for the sake of others. And that this is a unique calling of being brought into God's service and being planted as a light to show that there is no other God but Yahweh. There is one true God. And that is evidenced through the people. So this is a, the story we're picking up is a people who are redeemed, a people who are given a task um, of serving the other nations, a people that have been placed um, as not in isolation, not separate, but right in the middle of all the other peoples, so that they would be set apart but not segregated from, that they would not be influenced from the nations, but they would actually be a light and be an influence to those around them. So this is a, a high calling and a high important thing that it means to be a, um, a member of the people of God. It means that you've been redeemed. And it means you have not only been redeemed, but you have been brought into God's service, made his treasured possession a special part of not only what he has, but what he is up to. 
This is a very, this is a very dignified and uh, wonderful calling that he has given all of us. That's the story inherited. But I think as we think about this, we, if you've grown up in the church, then you know how the story ends up, where it goes. Um, and if you have not, then I'll tell you now, it didn't work out very well. If you follow the story, the thing that the people of God are accused of again and again and again and again is that rather than being different from the nations, they actually end up looking just like them. And eventually, and shockingly, they actually end up worse. Is the later kings in the history of Israel, they, the, what God says to them is that you have sullied my name among the nations. And this is not just about you and your own sin, but this is because of this, the name of God, that his redemption, that he is the only true God, is not known. Nobody sees it. And when we think about this, that this is a case, if any attempt that we have of actually doing something, um, of being a light to anything based purely on human effort, it never works. Is that just knowing the right things to do is not enough to actually be able to do them. There are actually pictures of justice that are given in the Old Testament that are wonderful, that we could read and look at how God worked it out so the poor are provided for and such like that, and we can't do it. It's not an issue of not having enough information. So what do we do? Is that, are we left with that, or is there something else? And that is that that story was always leading to another story. That this story would not be abandoned. All those things would still be true. The redemption part would still be true. The calling part would still be true. But there was another piece that was missing. And that piece, of course, is Jesus Christ. And that is, there's another passage that I want us to think about in the second point, the story that is perfected, and that is 1 Peter 2. You're welcome to turn there in your Bible if you have it or on your phone. Um, I'll just read the few verses I want to pay attention to. Um, So you're welcome to look at that. But before we get there, this is the effect of what Christ has done is that after Israel's history, after they rose and they fell, they rebelled against God, they were kicked out of their own land for their disobedience, then God intervened. And like what Romans 5, 6 says is while we were still weak, then unable to do what God has done, then God did something spectacular that at at the right time, God himself came in human form and he died for the ungodly. And that is in doing this, in making this substitution, basically what Christ has done is he has, he himself in his own person has become the new people of God. He has traded places with them. Where the the people of God could not get it right, could not shine and reveal God's goodness in the way that they could. Jesus came down and he took all of the brunt of that on himself and he lived perfectly obediently unto God so that he could be the replacement. He could be the personification of what the people of God were supposed to do where they could not get it right. And that's I'm getting this language from Hebrews, like when it says Hebrews 2 in chapter 5 and that Christ was made perfect in his obedience even through his suffering even through his never wavering from the task at hand, he became the perfect substitute for us. And what that does, 
This means the old story, the story inherited doesn't go away. But the story where we're in now is fundamentally redefined and it is all looked through through the lens of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is the perfect replacement for people who are weak, who needed redemption not just from the outside but from the inside out. And so if we turn our attention over to 1 Peter 2, I wish, I apologize for not printing it in your bulletin, um, but I didn't. He says, he picks up on this language from Exodus chapter 19. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the effect. That because what God has done on the, cro- on the cross, what he has done on Jesus, is that the redemption that has happened for the people of God is fundamentally redefined by God's mercy for sinners. That God himself, in his own care, in his own love for his people, would come down and lay down his life, not for the righteous, but for sinners. We, as the people of God now, we wear that. We're marked by that. We are defined as a people who have been shown mercy, who previously didn't have mercy. We are people who are shown mercy, who need to be shown mercy. That is who we are. That is who we will always be. And this is, I just love this language. I don't fully know where this fits, but a people of God's own possession. Like this is highly relational language, even though it might sound like it. Like if your spouse came to you and said, I possess you, that would probably not go over all that well. But when they give you the little be mine, Valentine, like that's sweet. And that's the saying the same thing. This is based on Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the terms of the covenant of what was required to be in relationship with him. And because of what Jesus has done, sinful though you are, that God is able to look at you and say, you are not just redeemed, you are my treasured possession. You are important to me. I love you. I am invested in you. Not because you are righteous, but because I have shown you mercy. This is, we are a people who are, are defined by God's mercy. But there's something else here too. And that is up at the, in the, I'm going to start reading in verse four. As you have come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that is that in addition to being shown mercy, there is a new power that has worked in the people of God that is mysterious and it is often not evident to the naked eye, but it is nonetheless true. And that is through Jesus Christ, he is now building up his people to being the dwelling place of God as he intended. He is making something new out of something that was broken. Not through what we can do, but what only he can do. Through Christ. And through that, he is able to work in the people so that they are able, in ways that we don't even fully understand ourselves all the time, able to go about the priestly business and serve in a way that is acceptable to God and in a way that he delights 
in the work that is being done. Jesus has forever redefined who we are. The people who have been shown mercy and a people who are dependent on his power, but a people who are given him his power nonetheless. All for what purpose? That we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Not the excellencies of ourselves. But the people of God are redeemed and are called into being and they exist so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ and what he has done and who he is. And here's why this matters. Just an application that I think all of us agree when you, when someone says the church, what do you think of? It's often not great. Like in a lot of our minds, the church is totally bonkers. Like it's, it's mess, it's divided in politics, it's judgmental, it's all these things. And you might be thinking that about the person sitting next to you right now. And that no matter what community you're in, it's a mess. But there is something about what God is saying here that regardless of what it seems on the outside, that God himself is saying that this people is mine. They are my treasured possession. I love them. I am invested in this people. They are important, they are special, and in a mysterious way that he is using this people to accomplish his purposes. Christ has attached himself to it and he is committed to work through it. That's all that. That is the story inherited and that is the story perfected. That's the story that we are a part of now. And that brings us to just the first part of our vision phrase. Um, which it says this, that we are a church, Red Mountain Church is a church that exists to pursue renewal and healing for all the peoples and places of Birmingham through gospel ministry and word and deed. Those we're going to unpack in the next weeks. Next week we're going to talk about all the people and places of Birmingham and then the how part through gospel ministry and word and deed. But in this part, we are a people who exist to pursue renewal and healing. And this is the, the main thing before we start talking about any particulars of what this job should look like, before we start talking about any of the particulars of our city and our place, we have to think about the story that we're a part of. We don't exist in isolation. We don't exist as our own community. We exist as a part of a story that started way back then and has its future to all nations and all places and all things. And we graciously have been included in that work as God's special treasured possession and a people through whom he will work. The we as a church of Red Mountain Jesus Christ in pursuing renewal and healing, that means that we recognize that this is a story about the excellencies of Christ and not the excellencies of us. That there is power for renewal and healing. And that power doesn't come from doing our community groups right. That power doesn't come from raising our children right. That power doesn't come by listening to people in the right way. That power doesn't come by preaching perfectly anything like this. That power comes through Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ, all of those good things can be made acceptable in his sight and he can work. That is why we exist, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And so that positions us in a place that is far more dependent and in a place where we, that this is a place of prayer, to put it in, in, in not other, no more simple terms than that. It is a dependent place of looking on Christ to work through us.
and he will. That is what he has promised to do. That this is a story that didn't start with us, it doesn't end with us, but we are doing this because Christ has been given to us. He dwells with us. He has given us his power, and he will go with us wherever we go. That's it. That's why we're here. That's the place to start. And I am very much looking forward to being able to unpack these other aspects of this as we go forward. But right now, let's pray and thank God for what he has done and ask that he would help us. Dear Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That you have redeemed us and that you have made us a part of a special story. I pray that for all of us, and primarily that you would humble us. That you would remind us that the good news is good news for us. And that through that, that we would have a taste of mercy that we would be able to extend to those around us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.